Hey, welcome to the Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Good to be here, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation Peter had with Ted Widmer. He is a historian at the City University of New York, a former speechwriter in the Clinton White House, and the author of the new book, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. They'll talk about why we should think about Lincoln in the age of Trump. But first, Peter, we are talking the morning after GBH hosted the first and only Senate debate between Ed Markey and Kevin O'Connor. And you, I believe, have some thoughts about the proceedings and how they compare to Senate races past. Well, it was a very interesting moment last night, Adam. You know, not just the historical anomaly of the two candidates being in separate studios. It's almost as if they're in some get-smart world, each broadcasting from their own glass-enclosed booth. You know, uh, the moderators, Jim and Margie, you know, seven or eight or how 12, however many feet apart. For some reason, I, I sort of cast my mind back 26 years ago to uh, another October senatorial debate. And that was when um, Republican Mitt Romney challenged then living Senator Ted Kennedy um, it, it was an incredible affair. It was held in Fanel Hall. It was full of pomp and circumstance. Um, the question hanging in the air was, would this debate be the end of the Kennedy dynasty? Um, could Mitt Romney knock Senator Kennedy off his pedestal? The entire national press corps was there, I remember, Seeing from the press gallery, uh, Tom Winship, the editor of The Globe, you know, uh, escorting Mary McGrory, the Roslindale born Washington Post columnist, by her arm to the chair. I mean, it, it, it was like right out of the history books. Um, very different from last night. But I think the real difference is the state of the Republican Party in Massachusetts. Romney was a very magnetic character. And by the way, Kevin O'Connor, I thought, has, um, has some real chops. I, I mean, I, it, it's got to be tough to have your first major debate against uh, a frontline U.S. senator. Um, and and I, I don't mean it sarcastically when I say that O'Connor, you know, was a great triple-A player. AAA is the height of the minor leagues. Um, he wasn't quite in the same class as Markey, and that's because Markey's had 40-plus years to perfect his fastball. Yeah, and O'Connor, we should note, is making his first run for public office. Yeah, so. I mean, I can see... Oh, I, everyone knows O'Connor has no chance of winning, you know, short of a miracle. Um, so why is he running? I think he's running to establish his political bona fides, you know, to jump to the front of the Republican Party in Massachusetts. And I think that's a very smart move. I'd like to see what he does. But the problem is the nature of the Republican Party in Massachusetts, which the official party, party apparatus is, you know, 100 percent 
Trump-Pence. Now, that's no different than in any other part of the nation, but Massachusetts is one of the most anti-Trump states in the nation. But let's, let's go back to uh, 26 years ago. You know, that was a time when the Republican Party uh, was something of a big tent, at least compared to today. Um, you know, there was some vibrancy. Um, uh, I don't sense that today. You know, now you go back, Kennedy did a great job. He came from behind. We all know we won re-election. Um, but Romney took the stage with an expectation that maybe, just maybe, he could knock Kennedy off. O'Connor took the stage with no expectation that he could knock Markey off. It's also telling that Markey is the man who knocked off Joe Kennedy. Um, and there's an element of it to, you know, quote T.S. Eliot, you know, not with a bang, but a whimper. Life is clearly moving on. Another thought is I realized now that Markey is facing a Republican, you see just how far to the left Markey really is. Now, there's never any doubt. He's never disguised the fact. He is a representative of the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC wing of the party, and he's very proud of that. But the fact remains, the most popular politician in the state is Republican Governor Charlie Baker, who was in, in many states would be considered a somewhat conservative Democrat. What's that say about Massachusetts politics? It says that Massachusetts politics are far more complicated than people outside the state um, realize. You know, Markey's where he is because uh, he's been able to connect with people, people trust him, and the fact that he's a big spending Democrat really doesn't matter that much to him. When you talk about the Senate race between Romney and Kennedy, uh, stating the obvious here, but that was a race that got Romney ready for his political future in Massachusetts and then later on as the Republican presidential nominee. And when you talk about O'Connor being, you know, quite good for where he is, I find myself wondering what might be in store for him down the road and also if running in either a different election season or maybe in a different race would let him be more of a Charlie Baker type Republican. There were times in the debate last night where I felt like he was basically saying, you know, I'm actually a, a moderate Republican, never mind the press releases that I send out, which sound like they're, you know, Donald Trump going after Joe Biden, talking about radical leftists and things like that. I, you know, I think climate change is real. I think it's reasonable to have some gun control. Uh, I, I might not embrace the term systemic racism, but I believe racism pervades the criminal justice system and other parts of our society. I wonder if down the road, I guess it all depends on where the GOP goes, but if down the road that iteration of Kevin O'Connor might be able to come to the fore a little bit more than it has in this contest. I'd also add to your litany, Adam, um, I was very struck when he said, whatever happens to our national health care system, pre-existing conditions should be maintained. 
he said that while the the Paris climate accords were far from perfect, he had wished we had stayed in. Yeah. I see O'Connor's problem being less what's in the heart and mind of Kevin O'Connor and what's in the the mind of the Massachusetts Republicans. Under Chairman Lyons, um, the Republican Party is just so pro-Trump, and that's in keeping with Republican parties elsewhere. Charlie Baker, the titular head of the party, has really put some real distance between him and the president. Although it should be noted that Charlie Baker is a Republican, he endorsed Susan Collins of Maine. So even though Charlie Baker is anti-Trump, he has not deserted the Republican Party. Remember the old saying in the Reagan White House, let Reagan be Reagan. I, I, I think the Republican graybeards in the state would be wise to let O'Connor be O'Connor. All right. On to Peter's conversation with Ted Widmer. Peter, I gave a brief biography a few minutes ago, but you have known Widmer for a while. Why did you want to talk with him right now, a few weeks before the election? Good question, Adam. Ted's a great historian. And unlike many academics, he's logged, you know, some serious time in the White House, writing foreign policy speeches for uh, for Bill Clinton. Uh, he also did a stint working for Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, um, a less formal arrangement. So he's seen real power from the inside. Um, he's such a casual sort of guy that... As, as people will hopefully find out when they listen to him. He wears his experience lightly, and uh, I think, therefore, can be trusted. Unlike most of us in this business or most of us in politics, he's not an egomaniac. The other reason is purely historical. It's been well established that American politics are more polarized now than at any other time than the years right before the Civil War. Ted's book takes a very brief period. You know, it would make a great Netflix mini mini series, Lincoln's Train Ride. And I, I don't want to give away where our conversation's going, but Lincoln risked assassination. You know, the train in those days was like the jetliner today. Um, Lincoln's no Trump or Trump's no Lincoln, but Trump jetting around the country. The telegraph was brand new then. We have social media today. They're not perfect analogies, but the foundation of our discussion, I hope, will be how was the tension in the nation manifesting itself then and how is the tension in the nation manifesting itself now? Ted, I think most Americans would be surprised to learn that when Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated, so concerned were authorities about the potential for violence that machine guns were actually mounted uh, on top of the Capitol. So the idea of social unrest and violence as part of the American political scene is, is pretty well ingrained. Um, we're living at a time that historians have 
decreed, have found, is the most polarized since the beginning of the, the months leading up to the Civil War, which is where your book is set. How do you see, how do you see the political tensions that were uh, coursing through society? How do they compare with the way it is today? You know, in other words, when Lincoln actually stepped on that train to take his 13-day journey, what was the mood of the country? It was bad. When you mentioned machine guns and FDR, I quickly thought of sharpshooters. They had sharpshooters on the rooftops of the buildings near the Capitol for Lincoln's inauguration, too. Although I think that's the exception more than the norm, but it was bad in 1861 and in 1860. Um, As with FDR in 1932, there was a really long wait between the election in early November and inaugurals were in early March back then, March 4th, and the country fell apart. The country did not accept the results of Lincoln's election. It's kind of incredible because he's such a beloved figure and so famous. Just about everyone calls him the best president ever, but the South announced even before the vote that they were not going to accept it if he won. They were already laying the groundwork for creating a new country. And then a lot of people in the South and some in the North too talked audibly about killing him, about just ending the idea of a Lincoln presidency by ending him. So it was really a rough moment in our history. Can you compare that to today? I mean, and this is a good time to point out that you spent several years working inside the White House. So hard to believe that you walk the same halls that Donald Trump and his minions walk today. From your perspective outside of the White House, how do you see the United States today? Well, I've I've been a historian much more than I've been a political insider. I I only was a speechwriter, which isn't a very important job. And I did it for almost four years in the late 90s under Bill Clinton. At the same time, that was a crucial experience. It's, you know, it's an honor to work in a White House. It's also kind of a battle zone. And it was then, it was a very divided time in our politics, getting a lot more divided than it had been. And yet, even that divided time was nowhere near as divided as the time we're we're in now. It's just like, man, your battle stations all the time. And Lincoln's time did resemble this time. I, I started this book quite a few years ago, and I, I was not trying to write a book about now. But there was an odd feeling of convergence as I got up to the end of this book project. I just kept looking around, feeling like, wow, the the really bad feelings of 1860 and 61 are not so far away in 2019 when I finished the writing in 2020 when it came out. And I, I'm feeling it again coming up to the election because even though my, my book is about the train trip to Washington, an early chapter is all about the dysfunction in Washington and how the city basically broke down and the pro-slavery people just refused to play ball. They they refused to even accept that Lincoln had been elected. It was like the rules only applied if they won. And if, if they lost, the rules no longer applied. And I, I feel like we're getting into that territory again. Yeah, it does sound remarkably similar. 
Reading your book, it strikes me that the South didn't even want to wait until Lincoln took office. They made a decision that this guy was bad news in much the same way, not as extreme, but it's, it, it struck me as much the same way as Mitch McConnell made the decision that Barack Obama was bad news. Are these sort of the, the facile imaginings of a journalist who's looking for parallels where there isn't any? These are the wise, deeply thought reflections of a, of a seasoned <laughs> reader, and especially since you like my book. I, I really want to point out um, how, how, how wise a reader you, you are, Peter. Um, but no, there is a lot to it. Lincoln struck many Northerners as way too moderate. He wasn't anti-slavery enough. And he came into a fair amount of criticism last year with the 1619 project of the New York Times. I, I thought he was handled pretty roughly by that project. I, I think there's a lot more to Lincoln and that he was quite a lot more anti-slavery than he was made out to be in that project. But um, he was pretty moderate. That was one reason he got the nomination, is the Republicans didn't want to nominate someone to his left, which would have been William Henry Seward, who was the front runner. But they they were wary of him, it's true. They were wary of anyone who got the Republican nomination, really, no matter how moderate they were. They just did not want to be part of a government that they did not control. And they, the South had controlled the entire government for almost all of American history. There had really only been two presidents who were not controlled by the South, and they were both from Massachusetts, and they were a father and son, John Adams and John Quincy Adams, and they uh, both served only one term. And it was very difficult for Northerners to take over the, the government, even on a temporary basis, and even though that's the way the, the, the rules are supposed to work. The South had gamed the system and they controlled the major committees in Congress and the Capitol is in a very Southern location. And I, I argue in the book that that was a concession to slavery at the very beginning of our history that we, we should not have done. It was um, a huge long-term defeat for the North to put the Capitol behind the lines of slavery, pretty far behind the lines of slavery um, in what had been a piece of Maryland, but right next to Virginia. And the North could just never get any of its legislation through, even though it had most of the people and most of the business and earned most of the money for the country. It was the weak partner in governance. And Lincoln's election is only balancing that that separation of Northern and Southern power, but the South just won't even accept it. So they, you're absolutely right. They start to plan leaving the country before even the election, not even before his inauguration, but before the election, because they figure out they're going to lose. They can't get their act together to nominate a single Southern candidate. And in fact, there were three people running against Lincoln who each had pieces of the South. And so they just knew they were going to lose. And they, they did. Lincoln only won uh, a little under 40% of the popular vote, but he, he won a majority of the Electoral College. Actually, in that election, the Electoral College worked well for the North. In many others, it, it worked badly for the North. Take us inside this train. You know, the, what happened on the 13-day journey from Springfield to Washington, D.C., which 
looped up by the Great Lakes and came down from New York into Philadelphia, into Baltimore. How did this change Lincoln? Lincoln got on the train as a moderate. What happened by the time he had gotten off? Well, he'd had deep exposure to the American people. And I mean, that worked in both directions. He'd seen them in all of their diversity, these racially mixed, huge crowds coming out to see him and men and women and old teetering veterans of the American Revolution. Few were still alive and little babies and immigrants. And so I think he had a deeper sense of how how big this country is. And you mentioned the geographical diversity, and that that was very important to me in, in the book. So he begins in the Midwest. But like every part of this country, the Midwest is complicated, and southern parts of the Midwest are pretty southern, like the parts near the Ohio River in Indiana and Ohio. They're still pretty, pretty reddish, reddish parts of red states. But then he's also zigzagging up into northern parts of the Midwest, like Cleveland, which is basically an annex of Connecticut. It's, it's part of a section of Ohio called the Western Reserve that was founded by people from Connecticut and no shortage of people from Massachusetts in there either. It's like a mini New England in the Midwest. And then he goes into upstate New York, which might have been even more anti-slavery than Boston, which is saying something. Those, those were the two most anti-slavery parts of America. And then does this straight shot to the south through New York, which is a pretty pro-Southern city, all the reasons Bostonians distrust New York, they were perfectly on, on display in 1860. New York was deeply in bed economically with, with the South and not so excited about Abraham Lincoln. At least the Wall Street people were not. The, the people, working class people of New York w- were with him. And one, one of them, Walt Whitman, fell in love with Lincoln in a way and the first time he saw him and never stopped writing about him, even including long after his death. And then Lincoln has to go um, on this terrifying southern um, jag through Baltimore into Washington where he becomes aware there's a a very advanced assassination plot against his life. And so part of the 13 days in the drama is his courage and continuing when he knows they're going to try to kill him, and there are way more of them than there are of him and his friends. But also he's growing a lot as a speaker, and I think seeing all these diverse peoples helped, and he's giving beautiful speeches by the end of the trip, and really going where no president has ever gone in a kind of personal language about what America means to all of us. And so it's a beautiful story of a of a thinker and a speaker developing as he's in mortal danger. What struck me, Ted, is I was amazed at how Lincoln responded to the crowds. It was almost as if he had really underestimated the intensity of the support he enjoyed. I mean, almost at every stop, you convey this sense of... Lincoln, I'm exaggerating a little, but he's almost unbelieving in the faith people are placing in him. I think that moved him tremendously. He only prepared about one written speech per day before the train left. He he was a very well-organized guy, and he wrote out a speech per day. And then as the train started, 
everyone realized he has to talk constantly because the train was stopping every few miles. Um, huge crowds would come out even where there was no town. They would just be standing on the tracks waiting to hear him. So he would improvise a few remarks and then in a small town, more than the size of the population would be there. And then in a decent sized city, he was getting crowds of 50, 100, even in New York, about 200,000 people, an incredible number of people watching him as he as he came through the streets. And so he had to be on his feet, literally, he had to sort of go out on the platform and wave, and but also speak and improvise. And it was physically grueling, and he was losing his voice for half the trip. But I also think you're right. He was very moved and and wanted to give back to these crowds what they were giving him, which was a kind of electricity, you know, a feeling that this, the cause of America, which, by the way, is also the cause of global democracy. There are not very many democratic places in 1861. And, and the cause of democracy required people to step up. And so they fed off each other's energy. And by the time he made it safely through Baltimore to Washington, I think he's a greatly empowered figure. He's not like a rural, insignificant guy that almost no one has ever heard of who locked into the presidency. He's a he's a leader of genuine stature. One thing that really surprised me in the book was the role a, a, a couple of women unrelated to Lincoln played in this trip. You know, when I think of Donald Trump, the two women I think of as politically being close to him are Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hicks. Tell us a little bit about Dorothea Dix and Kate Warney, um, names that I had never known until I read your book. They are great Americans, and I was so happy to have a chance to write about women in a, a book about the Civil War era because it's a pretty male world. If you go to reenactments, you know, nobody showers for quite a few days. And uh, it's just, <laughs> um, you know, it's what it is. Uh, and But these two women played a, a vital role, saving the life of the man who would then save the country. So they, in effect, also saved America. Um, Dorothea Dix is an amazing woman. She's born in Maine, although it was before Maine was its own state. So Maine was a part of Massachusetts. And then she moves to Massachusetts proper and spent time in Cambridge and in Worcester and always was an advocate for good causes. She tried to make women's prisons more humane than they were. There was one in East Cambridge. And then she fastened on to the topic she spent her life working on. I mean, she had she's one of these great 19th century Americans. She had a lot of causes, but um, she thought we could build better treatment facilities for the mentally ill. You know, that's a that's a great cause, a cause not too many people were championing. And she figured it out, and she got Massachusetts to show the way. And then she started going around to a lot of other states, including southern states. And in her travels around America, she made friends in every state capital. I mean, she was helping the mentally ill of every community in America. And in the fall of 1860, as Lincoln is getting elected, she's coming up through South Carolina and then toward Washington. 
And she picks up all this intelligence that there is a huge plot to take his life. And she did something I really admire. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She just found the right person who could do something about it. So she went, she found the the CEO of the railroad that connected Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington, which is where Lincoln's life was most in danger. She found him. His name was Samuel Felton. He grew up in West Newbury, Massachusetts. So it's two Massachusetts people talking to each other. And she said, you've got to do something about it. And he later wrote down his thoughts after the meeting and said, alone in this huge country, this crusading woman had picked up the crucial intelligence that was necessary to save the life of Abraham Lincoln. And so he wrote to a railroad detective he knew named Alan Pinkerton, who's an immigrant from Scotland living in Chicago. And Pinkerton quickly came to Philadelphia to meet him. And he took the job. He brought eight agents with him. And one of them was this incredible female operative, Kate Warney, who you mentioned. She was a young widow and she was a brilliant impersonator. And she came into these bars and restaurants in Baltimore and she adopted a Southern accent and she just charmed all the men and women she met and got all of the details of the plot. And then Pinkerton sent her to intercept Lincoln's train and tell them how serious the trouble was. And for a long time, they didn't want to believe her, but she just kept hammering the point home. And then she rode all night in the train with Lincoln at the point of greatest danger to his life when he just rode on an ordinary nighttime commuter train. I've I've taken those trains, the last train after a Red Sox game from um, <laughs> from Boston to Rhode Island. Those are dangerous trains sometimes. And uh, Lincoln was just exposed out there with Kate Warney sitting with him and Alan Pinkerton and a friend of Lincoln's and, and, and they got him through. As we're talking now, there are, there are clearly parallels or echoes of the 1860s in the, into the 21st century. And we can also see foreshadowings in the 1860s from our, our time today. But what was it that prompted you to write this book? You know, what did you see in this 13-day train trip that President-elect Lincoln took? Well, that's a great question, and it took me a while to understand it. I was lucky in a way, and you're a journalist, so you will get this, but I started in a journalistic setting, not a historian setting, and that was a great gift to me because left to my own devices, I would probably write a really boring 800-page history book. And this book has a little more excitement and movement and storytelling. And I think that's because it started as a journalistic assignment. I was involved with some other Civil War historians, but we were writing short, snappy pieces in the New York Times online. And I think the online piece was important, too, because, you know, there were no rules. You could just write something kind of informal, didn't have to be super formal. And so I relaxed, and I think I told a better story than I would have otherwise. And so I, we we're trying to do, all of us, what happened on this day 150 years ago. And in February 2011, I started describing Lincoln's train trip. I did 13 pieces in a row in 13 days. And I had probably half the book done. And then it took me nine years to write the rest of it. Uh, I just, 
got really into the research and I got really into Lincoln and I started thinking, you know, if I dare to write a Lincoln book, it's a little scary to do that. I want to show some respect to my peers who are also Lincoln people and to Lincoln himself. And I want to really dig down deep and read a lot about him. So I did that. It took me years. And then I had a at least a year where I decided I wanted to read about every railroad in America in February 1861. And I I studied the maps. And you know, now with digital information online, you can get old maps easily from the Library of Congress and from local maps. Uh, there's a good one in Boston, the Leventhal Map Center at the BPL. But I also think some piece of it, go, you mentioned that I had been a White House speechwriter which was an an amazing and unexpected experience. And it was a thrill to ride in the back of a motorcade behind a president and see the crowds really close to the cars going through and to see that democratic excitement up close. So, and I mean, that's true of a Republican president as well as a democratic one. So I think I had a, a memory of that time too. Ted, let me ask you a potentially bittersweet question. You've spent years working on this book. And it's a beautifully constructed book. Um, wonderful photographs, beautiful end papers with drawings and maps that bring the larger story to life. Um, and then, lo and behold, you publish just as the pandemic begins. Has that been tough for you at all? It's been really weird, is the answer. Um, I had all these in-person events at bookstores and colleges. They were all canceled. 100% of them were canceled. But through the magic of Zoom, like what we're doing right now, I've recaptured a lot of that. I, I have done a fair number of these Zoom calls, and I really like them. And so I, I think for me, they're actually better. I'm... I'm more comfortable in this relaxed environment. It's like two two old friends talking, which is what we are. So I've enjoyed the Zoom format a lot. And I also give out my email address, which I'm happy to do now also, if people want to shoot me an email after afterwards. It's ted underscore widmer at brown.edu. I don't actually teach at Brown anymore, but I, I kept the email it's really been kind of fun, and it sort of repeats what Lincoln is discovering on his trip, that new technology is pretty great if you're trying to reach people. And so he's using the telegraph, and as soon as he gives a speech, he knows reporters are transcribing every word he says and instantly sending it as a telegram, and it's getting printed in newspapers all around the country. So he has figured out that this folksy homespun thing that he's doing is pretty effective because it's getting printed the next day in newspapers everywhere. A final question before we go. If you had to recommend two or three books to our listeners for further reading on Lincoln or the Civil War or even contemporary events, uh, I'm asking you this off the top of your head, but what might you suggest? You know, he's he's kind of old-fashioned, but I grew up liking Carl Sandburg, and I've never stopped liking Carl Sandburg. Um, he was writing in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and he he told stories about Lincoln. So it wasn't like didactic history from the top down telling you what facts you need to know. It was sort of the stories of this very interesting person. 
There was another early Lincoln biographer who was a woman, and we've, so we've talked about women a few times, so Ida Tarbell, who's really interesting. She grows up in western Pennsylvania in the where the first oil boom was in America, and she wrote a muckraking book about John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. She's just another, you know, kind of like Dorothea Dix, fascinating, tough woman reformer. And you might have expected her to write an anti-Lincoln book because she's opposed to concentrations of power and and really took on Rockefeller in an aggressive way. But she she loves Lincoln and talks about him in a beautiful language. She was also a very good researcher and went around to a lot of the places he'd grown up and talked to people. And one book, it's, it's, it's a little hard to find, but there's a small college in Illinois called Knox College, and there's a Lincoln Studies Center there. And a scholar named Douglas Wilson has written beautifully about Lincoln for a long time. And he just brought out, it was probably about 10 years ago, a big fat source book called Herndon's Informants, uh, it's about Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon. And after Lincoln died, he wrote to everyone who had ever known Lincoln and asked them to write in their stories. And all these letters came in from people who were barely literate, scratching out their earliest memories of this guy who they'd known their whole lives. And it is gold. It is solid gold anecdotal material about this person who grew up in the middle of nowhere and and took over our history and made us a much better country than we were and made it very difficult for anyone to ruin America again because he set such a high standard and he spoke so beautifully that we always remember what we can be. We often are what we are, but we remember what we can be because of Lincoln. So Herndon's a great guide to figuring out how this young man grew up to to be our conscience. Ted, that seems like a natural place to sign off. I want to urge all our listeners, get a copy of the book, uh, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington by Ted Widmer. Thanks for listening, folks, and goodbye. Thanks, Peter. And that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Ted Widmer for being a part of it, and as always, to you for taking time to listen. We'd love it if you subscribed to The Scrum, if you rated us, and if you talked back to us. You can get us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are? At Kadzis, K-A-D-Z-I-S. We'll talk to you again next week. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.